Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to another episode of Frank Warren's Heavyweight Podcast. I'm Adam Catterall, and once again, it is an absolute pleasure to be in your company as we bring you yet another heavyweight stellar guest. You're going to really enjoy today's conversation. It is, of course, with top rank CEO, Bob Arum. Now, if you're not necessarily a boxing person and you're just tuning in uh, for the conversation, then I best give you some background to Bob. He is uh, an American lawyer by trade, turned to the world of boxing promoting in the mid-60s. He has been responsible for fights like Hagler versus Duran, Hagler versus Hearns, Ray Leonard versus Hagler, Ray Leonard versus Hearns. That's right. That era of the four kings, Bob Arum, was at the forefront of promoting the majority of these fights. The most famous person that he's promoted, though, down the years was the man that he promoted in his very first fight. 29th of March, 1966, was Bob Arum's first fight, and it involved a certain Muhammad Ali. Yes. The reason why we're speaking to him is because himself and Frank work very closely at the moment on Tyson Fury fights. They've been putting together some major fights over in the States. So I thought we'd get them together for a bit of a chinwag about the world of promoting and how it's changed from the mid-60s to where we're at right now. Let's get stuck into that conversation. Mr. Aram, welcome to Frank Warren's Heavyweight Podcast um, and happy anniversary. The reason why I say that is because 29th of March, 1966, that was your first ever show, 54 years ago. Does it, does it feel 54 years or has it flown by? No, it's, fl- it's really flown by. It doesn't feel anywhere like 54 years. And uh, that was my first show, as you said, and thank God we didn't have a pandemic. So the show went on as scheduled. Frank, talk to me about the first time, obviously, you came across Bob and started working together because obviously over the last couple of years, you've been doing quite a lot of shows together. But talk to me about that first time when you first met up. Well, I met Bob in the, uh, in the 80s. I, I went to see quite a few of the uh, fights out in Vegas at Caesars, uh, the likes of Sugar Ray Leonard and so forth. But the first time we worked together is when Bob had a really an amazing fighter called Don Curry. And we were looking to make... Uh, Colin Jones, who had fought for the world title uh, twice and unfortunately lost, lost the fights. But um, we, was, we was looking to try and make the fight with him and, him and Don Curry. And uh, we discussed it and talked about it. And his, his manager at the time was a guy called Eddie Thomas, who's, who's a late Eddie Thomas, who's a really nice guy, come from Wales, as did Colin. And we went to see a couple of shows that Don Curry fought on and, and so forth. And we went, I think it was in Sam Remo, and then there was in Marsala in Sicily, Bob. And I think after the fight in Marsala, when uh, Curry won there, we then made the fight. And that went, took place in January 1985. Yeah, and, and I had met Frank. I, I met you, Frank, uh, in the uh, uh, late 60s or the early 70s. But yeah, we started working in the 80s. 
And Curry was a, a, an exceptionally good fighter. Uh, he ended up uh, uh, destroying his career because the wrong people talked to him. When he was going, he was a phenomenal talent. We got the fight on, and it, at the time, it was going to be for the WBA title. And the Boxing Board of Control didn't recognize the WBA. And we had all sorts of problems getting it on. It was a 15-round fight as well back in those days. Hmm. And if you remember, Bob, all the problems we had with the then Boxing Board of Control and the way they, they leaned towards the cartel, the preference they gave them. So we had some fun and games behind the scenes right up until yeah. the fight getting into the ring. I remember the tax people coming, coming to the hotel yeah. after the weigh-in. Do you remember that? That was a bit of fun. Yeah. It was, a, for me, a great adventure. It was the first ever world title fight that I did. And uh, I was, you know, to be doing it, Bob was a great honour for me. You know, he's considered all, you know, at that time, the fighters he'd been, he was involved in and had been involved in and promoted. And uh, so we got it off the ground. We put it on in at the, at the NEC Arena in Birmingham. It was the first, I believe it was the first uh, fight they had there. And we sold out. We sold the place out. And it was in like two weeks, all the tickets were gone. Unfortunately for my side, he got beat with a terrible cut across the top of the bridge of his nose. But um, he looks phenomenal, Don Curry. looks absolutely phenomenal. Those were the years that the Brits always lost when they fought the Americans. <laughs> Not like that anymore. We changed no. tables on you. <laughs> no, yeah. You go back then. You look at the heavyweight division. Back then, I mean, British heavyweights, I mean, we had Joe Budner and Henry Cooper. And that was in the, in the right. sort of... 60s, 70s, but none of the guys, none of them did it. I mean, when you look back, it was a famous expression, wasn't it? Uh, Dorothy Parker, she, was it? she said, if you laid all the British heavyweights end to end, she wouldn't be surprised. And that's how the heavyweights were looking. Yeah, and we had uh, the, the heavyweight division then was completely dominated by Americans. I mean, of the top heavyweights in the world, 95% were from America. And then, of course, we didn't have uh, professional football, wasn't paying a lot of money to the participants. Professional basketball hardly existed. Uh, now, you know, some of our great, potentially great heavyweights are in the National Football League and the NBA. And so we've lost them to boxing. And also, Bob, you, you remember back in those days, the Americans were so dominant at the Olympics. You know, Russians, West Germans, and the Americans. In the boxing, the Americans were a very dominant nation, which has fell away over recent years, over, or for quite a while now. I don't think an American's won a gold medal since, I think it was 86 or something like that, Olympic Games. No, because a, a big guy like Ali was, and, you know, they're, they're playing basketball and football, even if yeah. some of them don't make it to the top level. You imagine if we had... Uh, heavyweight uh, fighters like LeBron James, uh, it would they, they would be phenomenal. But we don't. They're in other sports, and we have to make do. Uh, we're lucky that in the lighter weight divisions, we can compete pretty well now because in those lighter weight divisions, the fighters outside of the United States don't go into boxing uh, because they can be soccer players. You know, uh, and or your football players, and and so uh, again, uh, guys who are 160 pounds or 154 pounds uh, 
they can't play professional sports pretty much in the United States because they're too small. So a lot of them go into boxing. Bob, if I, if I may, can I take you back to the early 60s before you obviously got into the world of uh, boxing promoting? just want to talk about obviously graduating from Harvard, becoming uh, a student of law and starting to work in the law before you uh, got into boxing. What was the moment that, that, made, that you decided to make that transition to come over to boxing? I didn't decide. I didn't, you know, I didn't make that decision by myself. I, uh, I had never, ever seen a boxing match, but I was a prosecutor in the Justice Department and uh, I was the head of the tax section for the New York area. And uh, under the direction of the attorney general, then attorney general Bobby Kennedy, we seized all the funds from the Patterson-Liston fight wow. because the promoter, uh, uh, a lawyer named Roy Cohn, uh, was, had a scheme to take the money outside the country, bring it to Sweden and pay Patterson on a deferred payment basis. So I handled that case and in handling that case and taking testimony from various people, including Roy Cohn, I learned about the business of boxing. And when I left the office, uh, I joined in six in 61 and I left in uh, the end of 64. My law firm was retained by a company doing a closed circuit of boxing matches and uh, uh, they were they were doing a fight as I recall my uh, the Ernie Terrell George Chevalo fight for the WBA championship because they had somehow stripped Ali of his title and uh, they were doing badly and uh, they asked me for an idea to help uh, soup up the promotion and this was in 1965 and in America there had never been a black person who was a commentator on either a sports or a news uh, program and I said let's hire a black guy to be one of the commentators and they said what a great idea and I tried to get a baseball player named Willie Mays famous player and that didn't work. He didn't want to do it. And I was introduced to Jim Brown, who uh, then was in his last year of professional football. Nobody knew it at the time. And I hired Brown for $500. And he and I became really good friends. And he introduced me to Muhammad Ali two months later. And Ali and his advisor, Herbert Muhammad, asked me to be Ali's promoter and lawyer and that's how i got into boxing i had never seen a boxing match ali had beaten liston twice he had beaten a patterson a floyd patterson mm -hmm. uh, in las vegas after that and when i met with him uh, we just i discovered or he told me he and herbert that he had no ties to any promoter or anything and he had been indoctrinated at that point uh, by Malcolm X. And so he had converted to Islam and he was a, a member of the nation of Islam. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was 
anxious to continue his boxing career, uh, no longer to be named Cassius Clay, but instead Muhammad Ali. So I was involved from that point on in all of the intricacies of Ali's life, his uh, refusal to go into the army, uh, his uh, uh, ban, in effect, ban from boxing, because they had taken away his passport for three and a half years. So I got to be a participant in that ideological battle. I remember the first fight that was in 1965, I had agreed when I became Ali's promoter to do the first fight for him in Chicago because the Nation of Islam had its headquarters in Chicago. And Ernie Terrell came from Chicago and Ali was living in Chicago. And we put tickets on sale, a big announcement, and we were doing quite well. When uh, Ali, uh, who was training in Florida, Miami, was reclassified uh, from 1Y, which means he was ineligible to serve, because at that point, Ali was functionally illiterate, couldn't read or write. And he was reclassified 1A, which made him eligible uh, for the draft. And that's when uh, he was interviewed. uh, uh, And he said, you know, he had nothing against the Viet Cong. They have never used the N-word with him. And he wasn't going into the army. And it all hit the fan. And uh, the mayor of Chicago, the infamous Richard Daly, had the Illinois Commission throw us out of Chicago. And we were told in no uncertain terms by every place in the United States that nobody wanted to do the fight. I ended up going to Montreal where we signed the contract to do the fight. And the American Legion put really pressure on the mayor of Montreal because they were at Montreal was about to schedule a world's fair and they threatened to call a boycott. So the mayor threw us out of Montreal and we ended up in Toronto and uh, the co-owner of the hockey team, the Maple Leafs and the Maple Leaf Garden said, uh, you come here and you do the fight and I'll protect you. And when we got to Toronto, we found that his partner, Con uh, Smythe, said that he didn't want Ali in the building because he was a draft dodger. And uh, Harold Ballard, who had invited us to Toronto, was the bravest guy I've ever met in my life. In three days, he raised enough money from bankers in Canada to buy out Smythe from the team and from the arena so he could live up to his promise to me that the fight would go on. And then Terrell pulled out of the fight because the American Legion threatened to uh, strike or picket uh, the box offices in the United States that were going to show the fight on closed circuit. And uh, uh, Shabalo, who Terrell had beaten, previously stepped and lived in Toronto, stepped in. And that was my first fight, Ali and Shabalo. And when people say how tough 
the promotion business is. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I was promoting that fight on a diners club card. There was no American Express there. Everybody yeah, he used the diners club card. And if that fight hadn't happened, I, I, I don't know how I would have paid it off. Being there, done that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the thing about it, Adam. You know, that's what we do. We put our money up. There's no association. Mm-hmm. We're not part of, you know, a, uh, you know, like the Premier League or the Champions League. Whatever we decide to do, the fight we go with, the purses, we guarantee the expenses incurred. We don't have to go out there to make that money to make it work. And that's why guys like myself and Frank have the longevity that we do. Because we've been through at various points in our career, we've been through hell. And hellacious situation. Nothing like, for me, like the first fight I did. And that hardened you. So you can roll with punches and you can overcome adversity and you just keep going. And look, Frank and I, pretty old guys, we're still doing it today. We don't know anything different. That's why. <laughs> right. But it's. <laughs> But when you look back to that club, and they were real tough times, as you say, and obviously your perseverance and your determination and obviously your business acumen got you to where you was at. I was thinking that, you know, the markets that you've created, when you think that everybody was heavyweight orientated, Don King was involved, certainly in boxing, he got involved, and he got involved with a heavyweight scene, and how you created that great glory, the glory years of the, you know, the Marvin Haglers, the Tommy Hearns, the Ray Lenners, the you know Durans, Carlos Monzo, you know an absolute brilliant fighter. You worked with with uh, Rodolfo Sabatini, you know all those those fights. How did that come about? Did you identify a market, or did it just happen because the fighters, all those great fighters, were around at that time? Well, no, I didn't identify a market. What happened was that in 1976, the Olympics were held in Montreal, Canada. And it just happened that this was the pinnacle of the American effort in amateur boxing. And the Americans had put together an unbelievable team uh, led by Howard Davis, Ray Leonard, uh, the Sphinx brothers, uh, Leah Rudolph, John Tate, just an unbelievable team of fighters. And in those days, the fights were three rounds, no headgear, because subsequently they put in headgear, and now they don't use headgear, but they didn't use headgear. And the amateur fights were almost like professional fights. And they were very, very exciting. And it coincided in 76 with a fantastic Cuban team. They had... uh, unbelievable fighters from top to bottom. And and they tended to be much older than the American kids because uh, Castro wouldn't allow them uh, to become professionals. So they hung around the amateurs for years. And uh, the American uh, guys for that Olympics dominated, knocking Sphinx brothers, knocking guys out, Cubans, Ray Leonard putting on fantastic displays, as did Howard Davis. And Howard Cosell of ABC was doing the boxing and primetime covering the Olympics. 
And he almost single-handedly made these young American kids stars. And so after the Olympics, when they became professionals, they had already been familiar to the American public. And that's when people in the United States and around the world started waking up to the fact that fighters outside the heavyweight division were amazingly talented and had great, great stories. And uh, all the American networks, then we had three networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. They filled the air on Saturday afternoon and Sunday afternoon with fights. And uh, in the UK, the BBC was joined by ITV, and they had boxing around the clock, both boxing from the UK and from the United States. And before you know it, and, and ride television in, in Italy and Canal Plus uh, in uh, France. And before you knew it, it was boxing was the flavor of the month. Flavor of the month. People, more people watch boxing and watch these guys, primarily non-heavyweights, than watch the virtually any other sport, including at that point soccer. Well, there was no, there was no live. You call it soccer, we call it football. There was no live football on in mm. in the UK. And I remember we used to do a lot of those shows. If you remember, Bob, on the on on in the cinemas, we do closed circuit, and then I think ITV took the majority of those shows and showed them on the Monday evening and they got really good rating through. And in those days, all the journalists, I mean, every newspaper had a boxing journalist and all the journalists traveled from the UK to cover these fights. They were such big news, not like it is now, massive news. And he, he was getting acres of space every day in the papers because these fights were super fights. I mean, they were the best fight in the best. And they've acres and acres of coverage, and that translated into great ratings on the television. Yeah, and that was not only, you know, we had tremendous contingents from the UK covering these fights, but also from France, uh, yeah. from uh, from Italy, from Germany, and and that even lasted uh, into the into the 90s uh, when Delahoya was fighting. I remember. Yeah. When Delahoya fought uh, Felix Trinidad, that was a big fight at the time. I got a call from the agent for Andre Agassi, who was a Las Vegas guy, as was Andre. And he said, you got to do me a favor, big, big favor. Andre wants to come to the fight with a guest. And we were completely sold out. So we put him in two seats in the press that we found. <laughs> and uh, and that was when Andre brought for the first time Steffi Graf, and they didn't watch the fight for two minutes. They spent time uh, kissing each other, and <laughs> the, uh, and and the the German magazines that were covering the fight forgot about the fight, and all they did was show <laughs> pictures of Andre and Steffi, and that match lasted to this day. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. 
That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What about Don King? There's an intense rivalry between the two of you back then. What, what did... What... Hello? There? Sorry, Bob, I lost you. Yeah, can you hear me? You talked about Don King, King and you phased him out. No, I was going to say, you and Don, obviously you, you, you was around at that time uh, together and they were very competitive times. What was your feelings about him then? I had no admiration. I really resented him. And the reason I resented him is because I had gone through hell uh, in the 60s and the 70s with Ali, with the stand he had taken. You know, I had been introduced to all the icons of the civil rights movement. I had been friendly with uh, Martin Luther King. And, uh, you know, I just knew everybody. And I was a a well-respected person in those circles. And King, you know, trying to forge a role for himself, started calling me Plantation Bob, that I exploited black people. You know, he played that race card, which really took me aback because I was the last person I felt that you could use the race card on, given my record. So I was really always resentful of King, even though from time to time we worked together on big fights. I didn't think King was an admirable person. And recently I realized that I was absolutely correct because look who's (laughs) Trump's biggest supporter, Don King. (laughs) What is that? What is that? What does that tell you? Tell me, what's your smartest decision then? Well, I think my smartest decision uh, was to stick with Muhammad Ali uh, when uh, everything hit the fan and my parents were being called traitors to the country. Because remember, uh, let me tell you a story. When Ali, we had to go up to uh, Canada, Toronto, Fort Chivalo. And then I got contacted by a lawyer in the United States named John Cronin. 
and John had been contacted by a English promoter named Jarvis Astaire. And Astaire wanted Ali to come to England to defend his title against Henry Cooper. They had a had a previous fight years before, but this was a championship fight, and uh, we had no other place to go. We could, at that point couldn't come back in the United States and fight, so we agreed to go over to England to fight Henry Cooper. And the vitriol in the press around Ali throughout his fight with Shavalo afterwards was horrible. And we, everybody was really despondent because we were considered traitors in the United States. And in those days, when you flew from New York to London, uh, you got in in the early hours of the morning. And so we, we, Jarvis had arranged for us to stay at the Piccadilly Hotel and everybody went to sleep and we got up around noon and uh, we came out of the hotel and there were thousands of people chanting Ali's name and cheering. And what that meant to us who were absolutely pariahs in our home country to go over to England and to be cheered by the people the way we were, that was a real tonic. And that, I think, explained Ali's love uh, for the English throughout his life, because that was such a signature moment that I'll never forget it. In your opinion then, Bob, what, what makes the best fight promotion? Nobody is paying to see me or Frank. If me or Frank were the main attraction and got in the ring, the stadium would be empty or virtually empty. Maybe our family would go. But so <laughs> it's it, it's the fighters. They're the entertainers. So you have to take the participants and build the story around them. And if you have participants, like, for example, a Tyson Fury, who is larger than life, and can communicate uh, and entertain the public, then you build your promotion around that. And I know Frank would agree that the promotion is based on the participants because that's who people are paying to watch. 100%. And it's funny, we did a podcast with Dana White last week and he was talking about, you know, the difference between obviously UFC and, and boxing and, you know, how boxing was screwed up and so forth. But as I said to him, you know, he started a sport that from scratch was involved from scratch and they built a tremendous model and it's the brand. So they are at all effects, you know, WBC, WBO, they're the managers, promoters and everything rolled up in one. And for them, it's quite easy. I don't mean it's easy like anybody can do it, but it's an easier situation for them to put a match together. Whereas boxing, of course, it's fragmented, but we do work hard to make events happen. And also our, our participants are paid like the, the independent stars that they are, unlike the UFC guys who don't really get paid anything. They fight where he tells them to fight. And he sets their purses, and if they don't like what they're getting, he goes to somebody else. You know, with, with us, if I 
uh, offer a fighter X dollars and he feels that he's worth Y and Eddie Hearn will pay him Y, goodbye. Or, or Al Heyman, you know, we are uh, promote in a very competitive arena. And I think that's good because the athletes, the fighters are able to capitalize on that and get purses which are much, much bigger than the amounts that uh, the UFC guys get because they have a monopoly. Bob, these, uh, these current times that we're living under with coronavirus, how is it affecting you? How is it affecting the business? And are you able to make plans for, for the upcoming months for, for fights that you want to put on? I've told my people, don't make plans. We don't know how long this is going to last. We don't know when people are going to assemble. Uh, just relax. Tell the fighters to relax. Uh, I'm busy now. That's why I'm doing it by uh, by phone rather than uh, a camera, uh, a Zoom kind of thing, because I don't want people to look at me because I'm in the process of growing a beard. You know? <laughs> <laughs> not, as easy, not as easy top beard, I hope. Right, yeah. So <laughs> anyway, I'm reading a lot of books. I, I, you know, thank God we have uh, streaming services like uh, Netflix and Hulu yeah. and Prime. And so I, I'm, I'm now becoming an expert, really, in watching the stuff that's being produced in the UK. I mean, you guys have done phenomenal uh, entertainment. Uh, I just finished uh, uh, something called Line of Duty. Really, really first class. So anyway, you keep yourself busy. You keep your mind working. You read books. You watch uh, television shows. And we'll get by. We'll get by. I mean, this will all be in. Uh, it'll be stories that we'll tell in the years to come. I know we're going to beat this, but we all got to be sensible and not rush in and go back and want to do fights and no audiences and so forth. We got to really ride this thing out so we finally defeated it, and then we can go back to normal. And when that'll be, I don't know. I mean, I'm not the president of the United States that talks about Easter and, and then changes his mind. You know, I'm a much more cerebral person than my president. Frank, how are you dealing with it? I'm doing exactly the same. There's nothing else you can do. I go for a long walk in the morning. I'm lucky I've got the fields around my house. I'll go for walk over the fields with a dog, come back, I'll go in the gym for a while. Then basically, you know, phone a few people, make sure all the kids are okay and the grandkids, and then watch a bit of TV, read a book, listen to some music. That's how it is at the moment. And, uh, you know, doing what everybody else is trying to do just to get through this. I know, obviously, a few fans will be listening to this. You guys work together a lot with Tyson Fury. We know we've got a third fight coming up. We can't make plans, um, but are we looking October time? Is that when we're looking for that fight, gents? Well, that's the earliest it can, it can get done because uh, originally it was scheduled and the contract was for it to be in July. And uh, you, you, you can't do an event, particularly in Las Vegas, 
in July. Uh, who knows uh, if, if if they'll allow people to come. And, you know, when Tyson fights in Las Vegas, thousands and thousands of fans come from the United Kingdom. And who knows when they'll be allowed to travel and when they'll be willing to travel. And also, we're going through tough economic times now uh, with everything being shut down. And who knows when people will have the wherewithal to buy tickets and to take trips. So right now, tentatively, it's scheduled for October, but even that can change. And obviously, Vegas has got to get up and running as well. Everything's closed down now. You know, Everything's closed in Vegas, yeah. yeah. We're all in the same boat. No one, but no one knows what's happening. No one knows when this is going to end. You know, these are, these are dangerous times for everyone. Hopefully, people stick together. Hopefully, the leadership uh, uh, is there. Uh, you know, we have a big problem here in the United States because it's obvious to anybody who is aware, and I don't want to be political, but we have a president who's an incompetent. And thank God we have medical people who uh, are putting a rein on him because they know what they're doing, but there's no leadership here. I mean, we have states bidding against other states for equipment like ventilators mm. when it should all have been taken over by the federal government who then allocated the ventilators to the state. And governors who have criticized Trump uh, get the short shrift on supplies. I mean, this is horrible. Trump has made a bad, bad situation a lot worse. We've got a shortage of, of uh, the, the mask and protection and also the ventilators, but they're working very hard on it to, to, to deal with it. But I think that's a concerted effort. And obviously the people on the front line you know, the nurses, the doctors, they're the ones who need the immediate protection because they're, they're, they're the only people who are going to make anyone well. We have the same problem here, and it's acerbated by the fact that we have state and local governments and no great direction from the federal government. Uh, so, I mean, New York is, is in horrible shape as far as uh, uh, taking care of the patients. Our response it's getting better, but it's been really horrible, horrible, because again, we have an incompetent president, and it, it just teaches you something. You don't elect people to office based on celebrity. You elect people to office based on experience and knowledge, and like everybody that I talk to is saying, wouldn't it be great if Andrew Cuomo, who's the governor of New York, was president of the United States instead of this nincompoop, who is the president? <laughs> Other than King, you know, who, who Trump's biggest supporter is, is that sure. idiot that you had on the podcast, Dana White. <laughs> yeah, I was telling I mean, Dana White, I mean, people are dying all over the country. And he's looking to see how he can put a UFC match on without spectators. What the hell is, I mean, wake up for Christ's sake. It's not all about you. That's what this podcast is all about. These podcasts get different opinions and views. Right. Bob, you're, you're, you're 88 
years of age. You've been promoting for 54 years. Last year, I asked you a question, what's the secret to longevity? And you put it down to cannabis. Let's talk about that. You know, I, I, I live in Vegas and also have a house in L.A. And I'm proud that both states have legalized cannabis. So I'm not doing anything untoward. It's too early in the morning over here. So I haven't had my uh, daily uh, puff yet. But so I'm talking <laughs> But yeah, it helps you get through the day. It's really good. I don't know if it wards off the uh, uh, coronavirus, but uh, uh, anyway, it makes you feel a little, a little better. How long have you been a, a cannabis advocate, Bob? How long have you been uh, using it? Well, since uh, the mid-60s, uh, uh, since about 1967. And the reason I know that, uh, let me, uh, you, you want to start, uh, me to tell the story of how I started it? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay. This was the point of time where Ali couldn't fight. They took away his passport. They took away his licenses. So one of the networks in the United States asked us to organize a heavyweight elimination tournament uh, to crown a successor to Ali. And one of the fighters that I wanted to sign for the tournament and did sign was a German fighter named Karl Mildenberger. Mildenberger had previously fought Ali and gave him a good fight, but lost. And so Mildenberger lived in Frankfurt. So now I, and, and together with a guy named Harold Conrad, who was my PR guy, flew over to Frankfurt to meet with Mildenberger and his people. And when we got to Frankfurt, there was only one hotel in those days. And it was, there was a book fair, so we couldn't get into the hotel. So they directed us outside of Frankfurt to a spa named Bar Soden or something like that. And remember, this is 1967, <laughs> right? And I got to the place and it was like a nightmare. There was like a German band with the umpapa, umpapa, and I'm a Jewish guy, and I'm yeah, and I'm going absolutely out of my mind, and and you know they 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 gave me a little room, you know that you probably you you couldn't even walk around the room; it was so small, and so I met Harold Conrad downstairs, and I told him how bummed out I was, and this was the most horrible experience, and I was having nightmares and all, I mean, just terrible thoughts. And he said, look, he said, I want you to smoke this. <laughs> and he gave me what looked like a, a cigarette, you know, was, everyone smoked it. So I took some puffs, and suddenly the flowers, the colors, <laughs> were absolutely... <laughs> Gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. And, and suddenly things weren't so bad. And now it was time to meet uh, Mildenberger's people in this nightclub in Barsoden. I remember you had to walk down the steps. So I'm flying high. I'm you know, a little bit out of my mind. The first time I ever smoked it. And I walk down and it's dark. And I look around. 
And every single guy in that nightclub was wearing an eye patch because it was right after the Six Day War and they had now changed their allegiance from Hitler to Moshe Dayan. And, they were, I, I, and I thought I... Yeah, you know, I thought I was hallucinating, but it was really, <laughs> I was really seeing the right thing. There you go, Frank. That's the that, secret. I could never tell. And I never, and I, I never, after that experience, I never stopped. So, <laughs> I be, I became, I became the Cheech and Chong of boxing. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. Perfect. What a wonderful place to finish the podcast. Sensational story, Bob. Thank you so much for your time today. Okay. Oh, all right. Have a, have a good talk, guys. We'll see. <laughs> so there you have it. I told you it was good. <laughs> if you enjoyed it as much as me, please get yourself on iTunes and please write us a five-star review. It helps us with our visibility in the iTunes charts. Uh, and you can also get this podcast uh, via Acast as well. Please subscribe to it because there's more interviews coming your way very, very soon on Frank Warren's Heavyweight Podcast. We'll catch you next time.